Hi, I'm John Popola, and you're listening to the Emergent Order Podcast. Lenore Skenazy, thank you for coming on the show. I want to, I really want to start at the beginning for you because you're so firmly associated with this incredible movement, this free range kids movement that you, in a sense, created. You know, obviously there was there was the whole not over over parenting your kids as a philosophy, but you you brought it to life in a way that you know stuck for people. It's very hard for people to get something like 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 that to stick. Like everybody wants to start movements and have the words that they chose actually be used by anyone else ever, but you pulled it off, which is an incredible um, <laughs> uh, success. Um, but take me back to the beginning um when let's let's start with when did you first become a mom like how did you know yeah so i mean oh my you know, god my kids are so old everyone has young kids so when did <laughs> when did be, being a mom start for you yeah uh well i have two sons and so they're 21 and 23 so i guess it started then um a couple decades ago but the the world's worst mom part started so when our when younger you, son was nine. When you nine. had your first son twenty three years ago, um, I my oh I, my god, yes. Weirdly enough, I just have to say that over the weekend we had relatives here, and my husband made me go out and get um, C batteries, which I guess nothing uses <laughs> except a an old tape recorder. And then he popped in a tape that he wanted everybody to hear, which when I realized what it was, I didn't want everyone to hear. But it was it was like moments after that 23-year-old was first born. And apparently my first words were, I'm so glad you're out. <laughs> you know. And, and then the whole family is sort of sitting around looking a little uncomfortable that we're listening to this audio tape from 23 years ago. But um, yeah, that's you? when it all began. Glad he was out. Oh my God! What, do, do we need to know? It's, I was I, old. I, I was because, in my thirties. Um, you know, I I was twenty eight when my son was born, and my dad was twenty three. And obviously, this has been a generational shift mm. for people to wait a little longer, um, or a lot longer, perhaps, mm-hmm. or and, a lot longer. Uh, mm-hmm. It's an interesting thing because I think it, uh, in some respects, I think it contributes to some of the things we're experiencing around uh, with, mm. with parenting but so you have your you have yeah. your your first son um what was the, what was the thing you were most scared mm-hmm. of oh my god if you did you go to those birthing classes it was it was all a shock to me what blood there's gonna be blood yikes uh, you know breathing is not gonna do the trick uh it, it was all scary it was scary not knowing you know, not knowing anything, not knowing how to carry him. I, I really had never done much with kids at all. I wasn't a babysitting type. I wasn't uh, drawn to babies or kids. I was really always um, more interested in people who could joke around with me, right, and not play peekaboo. And uh, so it was all very new. And um, I think I'm kind of boring on this topic. I just, you know, I learned as I went along. I, what I learned is that once you start telling stories at night, 
um, you will be roped into it for the next 10 years. So you just better, you know, get used to racking your brain and coming up with a really fascinating tale to tell about Mountie the mountain lion and little George who lived on the mountain with him for so a, a decade. Story about that. That's when, what I learned. When, uh, before uh, Lisa and I, um, you know, before Mateo was born, uh, his first, his oldest cousin Alex was mm-hmm. born. Lisa's sister's first son, and when they were little, mm-hmm. they had gotten into the nighttime stories um, <laughs> train, and it just kept accelerating. So when we we had gone to visit them, and it was over <laughs> an hour of stories. And oh we, no, that's worse than me. Oh, oh no, they wow. were reading books. That they were but it was like read a book scratch. and then read another book. And how can you say no to reading a book? I mean, reading is wonderful. <laughs> right, 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 right. They need those three million words ostensibly before so, the time they're you know two months well, old. Well, and maybe this. Yeah, is, there's a um, lot of demands. <laughs> maybe I'm the w- world's worst dad. But <laughs> our reaction to this was, all right, we're not doing the nighttime storytelling. <laughs> we're gonna do super quick. We're, you know, Very we're going to pat him on the, <laughs> we're going to pat him on the rear knock, end knock, until jump. he calms down <laughs> and out to bed. We'll read during the day. We'll find other time for reading, but not at night because you're totally exhausted and it's cute and adorable. And it's what everybody talks about. Oh, I read, read to my kid. And, um, so, and so we have, <laughs> we've always had a less than 15 minute nighttime routine with Mateo. Right, so you know what? We should hang up, and you should do this podcast by yourself because you figured it out. That's that's like really all anybody wants to know. How can I get them to bed in less than fifteen minutes without conking out myself, without you know reading Ulysses out loud, you know, without tearing my own hair out? You, well, you figured it out. I think that, the other that's thing it. was end of story. Um, Literally, up until almost age ten, he despised bathing with such acute passion that we we said he would actually hulk out. His back would straighten. He would do this thing where he looked like he was squeezing stress balls, but there was nothing in his hands. And he'd get this like extended lower jaw, like, and, and and when he was younger, I mean, when he was, you know, a baby, he would just scream bloody murder the entire time. And I had the crazy long commute from, from the city into Jersey. So that was entirely on Lisa. Mm -hmm. So I would get home. Mm. And this you're is still together. part of what That's precipitated amazing. Our down the, um, <laughs> uh, out of the New York City area where you can't avoid about 45 minutes of commuting at home. But it was so I think he mm-hmm. maybe was also exhausted enough that by the time he was all bundled up, he was ready. <laughs> he had... Right, right. He'd, he'd done his um parent tormenting already right it's like i got that so, done earlier um, tonight so i'm take set me back before right. that so you um you were a journalist you're a writer tell me about your early career Oh, my gosh. Been a newspaper reporter for 14 years. I was at the Daily News, which, by the way, was Superman's paper. It was in the building with the giant globe. Uh, you know, they, they filmed Superman there. So that was fun. Um, before that, I worked at uh, I worked in radio for a little bit. I worked at CNBC before it figured out that it was a station about business. Well, what, <laughs> That's how long ago it was. What was what was it before it was a business station? Well, it was business five days a week. But on the weekends, it just totally cut loose and had uh, shows about families and and uh, I don't know, sports and just everything. I worked on a show. Uh, it, this is a boring 
topic for me, but I worked on a show called uh, Your Working Life where we had so few callers because nobody watched CNBC that I would tell my husband, went like, okay, today at 1137, you have to call in as if you've been listening. But, of course, he hadn't been because it wasn't available in Manhattan yet where we were living at the time. And pretend you just heard the question, which today will be, you know, what has your – what have you ever stolen from work or something like that? And so at 1137, we would always get a call and it always happened to be he would change his name. And and I'm not even sure the producers knew that it was always my husband calling. And um, so that was one of my illustrious gigs. <laughs> and then I was like the oddball reporter on another show where I would bring in wacky things to stun the host with. And I did Man on the Streets where I would get people to sing. And uh, it's just I was always like the wacky reporter at um, some of my earlier jobs. I was the wacky reporter on the Food Channel before people knew there was a Food Channel. I'm generally at a place that's so young that it doesn't have a format yet. <laughs> and and in I come. And then when they realize the format, it's like, oh, we don't want that. Right. <laughs> and off I go with my dancing flowers, my you know, three-foot pancakes, my, uh, you know, my singing man on the streets to find another gig. That's, that's, that's great. So every, anytime I see you in some sort of format show on like a new digital cable network. Right. I you just should know it's, don't, don't invest. Start the clock. Start the clock. <laughs> right. They're going to rebrand and Lenore's show is going to suddenly not be on the air in the fall. That's it. Right. That's when you know they're taking off. Actually, maybe you should invest because it's, it's at the very bottom. <laughs> right, right. We're at the start. We're at the start of the next CNBC. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Or Morning Edition. I worked at Morning Edition on NPR before people like, why would we want an all things considered in the morning? You know. So, yeah, early on. So uh, so you were both you were doing reporting, but then you're also from the sounds like you were a personality, uh, you know. Ah, back when I had a personality. You yeah, <laughs> I mean, I just... I mean I that in, air, in like the professional definition <laughs> right. of per, an on-air on, right. on no, personality. Love, I, you know, I love having fun and I love I love reporting. And so when there's a chance to, to mash the two together and to go find the wackiest stories, that's that's what I really liked. I mean, gosh, for a while I was like the Harlem reporter for um, the Daily News and I just got, I got stories of the the senior citizens water ballet team and i got a story of a blind gym teacher which is a tough job and um oh, that's I don't know, the this... gym teacher all of us wish we had <laughs> you know what no because he could recognize everybody's voice and he knew somehow you know how teachers say they have eyes in the back of their head but they don't you know so you don't really need the eyes in your back of your head to know when kids are doing something wrong he didn't have the eyes at all and he could tell when kids were doing things wrong so it's not the gym teacher you want he was tough Who's the blind superhero? Uh, DC Universe. Oh, um, yes, he's the lawyer. The Daredevil. So you yes. basically had Daredevil as your as your gym teach as a gym. That's teacher. right. Or right. You were right. covering. You were covering all the other Daredevil. Senses, right. We're higher than anybody else's. Yeah. And so I, I just you know I basically go where the fun is, or I try to, and um, that's it. I, I try to find new things that people aren't thinking about yet and uh, bring them to the public. Hopefully they're. Um, there's something cool to to be found. And when it, you know, speaking of fun, you had said earlier in our con uh, our our um, past conversation that um, <laughs> the you, one that yeah, <laughs> in our in our technically challenged pre-interview, um, yes, we that you had written for uh, Mad Magazine and Cracked. 
So, right, so, and, and I was explaining that people always think that when I say that, that they think that I, I used to write for crack, <laughs> like a quid pro quo. It's like, can you imagine an actual <laughs> crack dealer saying, oh, wouldn't you write me something funny <laughs> or write me an article and then I'll give you crack? That that just doesn't usually happen. Um, Look, you're going to yeah, need to so do 1,200 been... words for this one. This week, yeah, right. I've increased the really... price. 800 is not going to cut it. And, Right, and we need a couple of sources in this one, not just your own musings. So I went and looked up. I went to. I'm looking at yellowed copies now of of Mad and Cracked, and I just have to. <laughs> it's just this is insane. Pick up lines from to use in less than sterling situations. So, like in a prison cafeteria and in hell, <laughs> hot enough for you. Uh, you have a little piece of dung on your lip. Uh, I wish they turned down the Bee Gees at, uh, in a leper colony. You know Mother Teresa. I know Mother Teresa. Uh, prison. Oh, those stripes are so slimming. I, I just, I, I don't know why I did this, but it was just a way to sort of channel my, my 12 year old boy inside me and, um, and get a little bit of crack for it. So. Were you, were you always, um, the entertainer? Like as a kid, were you, were you the oh. one that would, uh, put on the, put on the plays? during family events and, um, you know, did you, yeah. No, I, no, I, I wouldn't say that's me at all. I mean, I liked, you know, I had fun with my friends, but I wouldn't say I was, um, the one who like, listen to my next song and here I'm going to do a little dance. And no, that wasn't me. Was it you? I, you know what I did do? I liked to make videos from a very early age. Uh -huh. So, so when we would get together with my cousins, even, even when, even like when I was 10, if there was a video camera, we would come up with a reason to come up with some goofy thing to do with the video camera. So oh, it's so cool. It's a, it's 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 actually like an empathy problem I have because <laughs> I um I'm I'm doing the thing that I kind of thought I wanted to do from a very early age, and I know that for a lot of people they don't know where they're going to go and what they're going to mm -hmm. do, mm -hmm. and that feels alien to me, and it and that's weird because I think most people have a winding path and my path's not that winding. So I'm always like, well, you just do the thing you want to do. It's like, but I don't know what I want to do. It's like, I don't, I don't get it. You know, that's actually one of the things I talk about with let grow is the idea that when kids have free time and, and you're sort of suggesting that when kids had free time, even when you were a kid, they didn't necessarily see a connection between what they were doing and what they wanted to do as an adult. But I think that there is often a through line and it, it isn't always you know, I want to make videos and now I'm making videos, but it could be I want to tell stories or I want to get to know people or I want to make something or I want to, um, you know, pull all the parts of something together. My, my favorite story when I, I've interviewed a bunch of people about can they see a through line from what they did in their free time, you know, not for a grade, not for a teacher, not for um, a trophy, just for fun, what they did as kids and what they're doing now. And I've asked a bunch of people. I asked one guy who used to just love exploring. I mean, a lot of kids did, but he ended up an astronaut. And I talked to one lady who said she couldn't see any connection between what she did as a kid and what she's doing now. And I said, well, what did you do as a kid? And back then, she would gather all the kids in the neighborhood to her driveway and then give everybody a part, and then they would put on a play. And so she just loved that. And I said, well, what are you doing now? And she said she's head of HR for Cliff Bar. And I'm like, hmm. <laughs> to me, it sounds like you're giving people their roles. <laughs> Is that not what you do? So to me, it seemed like a through line, even though to her, uh, you know, it wasn't immediately um, obvious or, or exact. But my favorite story 
was I interviewed this one guy and I only had like a minute or two with him. He's very busy. He was standing in line with some people I knew. And so I got to ask him a question, businessman. And I said, what did you do as a kid that you can still see yourself doing today? And at first he was like, pretty, uh, nothing. And I was like, could, what, could, think a little deeper, please, just for a minute. And he said, well, you know, I played. I was like, uh, what did you do for fun? And finally he goes, oh, well, you know what? Sort of. I, I can sort of see this. As a kid, he was growing up in Miami. And, um, you know, there's tons of fruit trees there. And the fruit falls to the sidewalk. And sometimes it's the, 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 the public sidewalk as the, the tree is reaching out over there. And he would pick up that fruit, which is technically somebody else's stuff, and put it in his little red wagon and and go around the neighborhood selling the fruit. And today, today, what does he do? He's in. He's is he uh, in the orange business in Florida? <laughs> uh, no, but he is sort of in the reselling other people's stuff business because it was Jeff Bezos. Oh my God! <laughs> yeah. So to me, you know, the fact that you went directly from video to video doesn't surprise me. But me, I like you know making up stories and poems. There's there is a, a spark that you're drawn to. And your kids need some free time. I just talked to a lady who's the head of research, family research at a big consumer research company. And she said that the number one thing that parents want for their children is that the kid has a purpose or a passion. And I'm sure it's because everybody listens to all the, um, you know, graduation speeches and, you know, follow your purpose. And all the kids are staring at me, a slack jawed like, huh? So how do you get a purpose or a passion? You need some, you know, you need exposure to stuff. You know, I'd say it's great to take your kids to, to different events and activities, but you also have to give them some downtime where they noodle around and they figure out what they like to do. Um, because that's when, you know, they can really find this purpose or passion or path even to something that quite, you know, is quite likely to be very fulfilling even later on in, in one permutation or another. So, I'm going to jump around a little bit, but I think this is a great time to just have have you explain what Let Grow is. So, so you know, you ha- this is your current enterprise, right? So, what is it? What is it about? Lay it out for me. Okay, I'm going to have to go backwards for a second. Um, so, when we were talking about the two kids, I had um, when the younger one was nine. I still have, thank God, I'm. Knocking wood. They're, they're both still alive and well. Thank God. Um, when the younger one was nine, he had asked, started asking me and my husband if we would take him someplace he had never been before and let him find his own way home by subway here in New York City where we live. And so one sunny Sunday, I did that. I took him to Bloomingdale's, which is not where I shop. Um, perfectly lovely store, just not where I shop. And I left him there. And uh, sure enough, he had to find his own way home. Bloomingdale's happens to sit on top of a subway station. Yep. So he found his way in. Um, he wound his way down through the bowels of the subway station, got on the right train eventually. Apparently, there was a little confusion at the beginning. And then um, came down to 34th Street, the, the Miracle Street. And uh, then he took a bus across 34th Street. He came into our apartment, and he was so proud and ecstatic with this independence and this new feeling of being, you know, part of the world, a grown-up, succeeding on his own, uh, that eventually – I wrote a column about it, and um, and it was called Why I Let My Nine-Year-Old Ride the Subway Alone. And two days later, I was on the Today Show, MSNBC, Fox News, and NPR, um, which sort of shows you the, the breadth of interest. If you're talking about Fox News and NPR, right, <laughs> both interested right. in the same story from the same source. Um, 
And, uh, so I was, I was interviewed on all these stations and, um, it was always, you know, some, somewhat fun and somewhat distressing. And, uh, the, the, the thing that was distressing was the idea that I hadn't thought hard enough about what would have happened if something terrible went wrong. And so I started a blog called Free Range Kids that weekend to say, look at, I, I think about safety. I want my kids to survive long after I'm dead. And so I believe in helmets and car seats and seat belts and mouth guards and you name it, uh, extra layers. I'm the one who's carrying two extra scarves even on a summer day. So, um, so once I started Free Range Kids and it started catching on and I wrote a book about it, um, and, uh, and, and kept the blog going for all these years and, and I ended up like for my living, I gave speeches for the next 10 years talking about how we got so afraid for our kids and, um, you know, what this was sort of doing to them. But while I changed a lot of minds or at least got a lot of people thinking about this and it wasn't just me, there's a million people talking about the same topic. But anyways, there, there was a shift in, in the mindset about whether it is great to overprotect kids. And uh, you started seeing a lot of books. There were books even before mine. I wasn't the first about the, the sort of the, the downside of overprotection. Uh, but while I could change minds, I even people who were nodding with me, even people who wanted you know to come up afterwards and tell me their stories about their happy childhoods and how they just can't give that to their kids and they wish they could. Those people they wouldn't change. It was impossible to change behaviors. And and I realized that if you don't change behaviors, I was just there's just a great quote on Twitter of all places that it's that it's easier um to change somebody's mind after it's it's easier to change somebody's mind after changing their behavior than to change their behavior. And so changing the behavior is the key because otherwise um everybody just keeps going along as they were before, even if they think, oh, this is dumb. I don't want to be driving my kid to every soccer practice. I don't want to be sitting there doing homework with them for an hour every day. I don't want them to not know how to organize their own pickup game of basketball. I don't want them to feel anxious if they're walking outside by themselves. I want them to be brave and proud and and confident, but I can't change anything because I don't know where to start. So Let Grow started about a year and a half ago. Um to change behaviors because from the behavior change, from letting your kid go, from letting them have an argument with a friend and not stepping in, from letting them walk to school and not driving them, from, you know, having them make dinner even though it's messy and burnt, um, then comes uh, a recognition of how much our kids can do and that that starts the the process of letting go and watching them become fully formed, blossoming young adults. But until you are pushed to let them go, nothing changes. So our, we're, we're in the job of, you know, a- advocating for more independence for kids and making it actually happen. So I imagine at least you got at least some critics and that in that initial wave the, the, um, of coverage that saw <laughs> so what you did as a publicity stunt of some kind. Did you have anybody oh. like what, 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 you know, you, you have a background in as a personality and you've done this thing and now you're on all these TV shows. Did you get that, that criticism and how did you deal with that? I, I didn't get that criticism much. Oh, um, okay. well, that's, you know, that's throughout the years, every once in a while, somebody would say like, you know, I didn't do that, you know, to get, you know, I wouldn't send my kid on the subway so that I could get a book deal or whatever. But, um, 
that mostly the criticism was more about why would you ever let your kid out of your sight? Right. And and really, I mean, that's that has actually been the the, the thing that has fascinated me so much for now it's eleven or twelve years because. Um, on all these TV shows and you know radio interviews, whatever it was, uh, there would usually come in a time in in the conversation when the interviewer would pause for dramatic effect and then say, as if reluctantly, um, "But Lenore, how would you have felt if he never came home?" And this is a question that left me. Completely stumped. <laughs> I have to admit, I never had a good answer. I'd say, like, "Oh, I got a spare son at home." I mean, nothing, nothing <laughs> sounded like I was a sane, decent parent um, to answer that question. And it took me literally four years, like four years into how would you have felt if he never came home, for me to wake up one night and realize, like, I know why I don't have a good answer, <laughs> you know? and it's because it's not a question. Obviously, they know how I would feel right, of course. if he never came home, right? I mean, and so why are they asking? They're asking because they want me to have to say how awful I would feel. And then they can smirk because if you are going to, you know, why weren't you thinking that then if you could, you know, if you can imagine how awful you'd feel, then why did you let him go? Because what if that had happened? So even though it's, it's theoretical, my, my real heresy, the thing that I did that, that made me America's worst mom was not just letting him ride the subway alone, but trusting that he would probably be fine. And to be a good parent, and this is what um, what we're talking about mostly today, to be a good parent in America, especially a good mom, is to really go to the worst case scenario first. I call it worst first thinking. And, and then work your way backwards from how you'd feel if something bad happened and you, you know, you could have said, no, you're staying in today or no, I'm driving you or no, you're not going out until you're 18. And and working your way back to the point where you go, I'm not letting you out of my sight. And and once you recognize that that's the real crime in America today is trusting your kids and your community, even trusting your own parenting, that you've trained them well enough, that they'll be pretty pretty darn sure they'll be okay, but there's no guarantee. If you're willing to say they're going to be extremely safe, but I can't make them perfectly safe because there's no way to do that, that's not considered good. You're, you're only considered good if you're thinking of something terrible that could happen and, and working um, very hard to prevent it. So that's why we, we arrest parents who let their kids wait in the car for three minutes while they go in and, and drop off a book at the library, you know, while they pick up the Tylenol for the kid who's too sick to come in. Um, you know, the, the kids are going to be fine in five minutes in a car or the kids are going to be fine walking to school if they know the way. But if, but if, um, if an onlooker can say, well, I would never do that because what if the worst possible thing happened? Um, you know, that person, the onlooker, the 911 caller is considered caring and the mother who trusted her kid, her neighborhood, the odds, the, you know, the reality, that person is not good because she was rational. You know, it's funny because I'm in asking you about where you called out for, uh, uh, you know, seeking publicity, I, you know, I immediately recognized that that question is such a result of being in 2019 in social media land where the, where, <laughs> where anybody can sort of monetize whatever fame 
they happen to get fame or infamy. Um, and that was not a mentality that that's a, that's a relatively new concept. <laughs> you know, it didn't used to be the case, be the case that normal I'm actually not people... sure how you could monetize any infamy. I mean, God knows there were some lean years when I was trying to <laughs> monetize my infamy. Right, right. I, I don't think it's that that um, easy or obvious how you would do that even. Well, these days, you know, uh, I think there's at least a perception that, well, you could become a YouTuber, you could write a best-selling book, or you could, there's all kinds of things that can, that seem to crop out of 15 minutes of fame. And, um, and I feel like it's, all, you know, I just watched the eight, this premiere of this new show on HBO, Euphoria, which if mm-hmm. ever there was a show designed to instill terror in a parent. Uh-oh. <laughs> it is this what show. What is it? It's about a young teenage girl. It's played by, um, uh, um, oh, the actress's name is escaping me. She's like the, pen, she's like the quintessential, like, superstar Gen Z, uh, uh Zendaya. Is that Jesse? Is that uh, let's. Zendaya. She, um, and she's, a, she's basically, um, she had all the things that like categorize you in as a kid with trouble, but not an easily dis- an easily found trouble like ADHD mm-hmm. and um, anxiety and mood swings, and that. And this is all in like the first sixty seconds. And basically, <laughs> the, the 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 show is is she, she's a drug addict, and oh, no. and it's her, but it's her in this sort of uh, trippy uh, drug hazed high school universe that's Mm -hmm. that as a you know as a filmmaker i'm like this is like fantastic and beautifully (laughs) shot my god Uh it's incredible but as a parent i'm like this is like my worst nightmare wow i gotta watch (laughs) i gotta watch okay and um and and so you you watch the show and you think i'm never gonna let my kid leave the damn house well, I think you watch most shows, and that's the feeling you get. <laughs> and, and yet, uh, you know, talk to me about the the facts of the matter versus that feeling, because we have so many reasons to feel that way. And the reason why I brought the show up is because it exists in this universe of um, uh, social media being woven into kids' lives. And so this idea that, like, you're sort of on in a public performance everything you're doing has a potential public performance sort of uh, social signaling. Look at the fun I'm having. Look at the, f- mm. you know, look at the, mm-hmm. you should be, have, you know, fear of missing out. And uh, it's all sort of wrapped mm-hmm. up in this thing that, you know, for those of us that are like over 30, really over 40 for me, it's just a little hard to get our heads around. Um, well, I'll tell you one of the things about, social media and kids is that it does not surprise me that they spend all their time talking to each other, you know, via Snapchat or texting or whatever, because we haven't allowed them to even normalize the idea of going outside to the park or going and meeting up at the mall when they're a little older. It's, uh, it's all, you know, we were talking just earlier about how you're a bad parent if you take your eyes off your kids or if you let them, you know, go out into the world. And so the only place that's left for them to gather is online. And, you know, whatever happens there, there's a million permutations. But I'd say if we could, you know, one of the things that Let Grow is trying to do is, we always say, making it easy, normal, and legal 
to give kids back some independence. Easy is because we want parents to feel like it's, um, you know, just send them out. Normal, so you don't feel like you're the craziest parent around, letting your kid walk to school or play outside or whatever. And then legal, you know, so that you don't uh, get arrested. But if if kids were spending, one, one of the things that Let Grow is trying to um, get more schools to consider is staying open after school for three hours, you know, from three to six for free play with lots of loose parts at the playground or in the gym. You know, there's there would be cardboard boxes and there's there's pens and paper and there's balls and there's um, the traffic cones and just a lot of junk, old suitcases. And, and kids have the time, three blessed, uninterrupted hours to organize a game of catch or to create a fort or to, you know, play some make-believe game or four square or whatever. And in that you're talking about three hours when they're not online. <laughs> they're not on their devices. They're just dealing with each other as regular humans. And, and if they don't like what they're doing, they can go walk to another group and start playing there or do something by themselves. But if you want to have kids less wrapped up in the world of social media, you have to give them a place where they can gather that is, you know, acceptable to parents and it's easy which is school where they're already at and where there's a, a critical critical mass of kids, which is also at school, and preferably a bunch of mixed-age kids because the older kids learn, you know, how to deal with young kids. They learn a little empathy for those kids, and the younger kids want to be like the older kids, so they start holding themselves together a little more. So you, if you want kids to have a, a not totally virtual life, you have to figure out a new way to give them a um, a real world life that is acceptable to parents, and that's why we suggest keep the schools open, have a couple of adults there in case you know, just like lifeguards in case there's a uh, you know a, a broken bone or something. But otherwise, the kids have to figure out their own fun and and solve their own spats, and then you have something that is not quite as hyper crazed as uh, everybody deciding whether they like or don't like you in your bathing suit. Lay out for me. The um, there's this there's this change now, and in uh, Jonathan Haidt's book, um, the coddling of the American mind, he isolates it to a particular time, like in the '90s. But lay out for me the the a picture of the childhood that, in some sense, you're trying to help recreate or reintroduce. Um, because for me, mm-hmm. I um. I'm 41. I'll be 42 in September. I okay. um, I grew up until I was 10, just outside of Philly, and mm-hmm. I can. Rem- it must have been several years where I would walk home, and this was before the age of 10. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and it was maybe f- five or six blocks from the Catholic school, St. Lawrence, down the street, and mm-hmm. um, and then I would be outside the entire uh. time. Yeah. With my friends in the neighborhood, little Peter Gergo on the corner, and the, <laughs> you know, Sean and Timmy on the, you know, and behind me, and basically, my mom was like, "Well, come in when the sun sets." Right. And my mom is about as neurotic a Sicilian mother <laughs> as you can have. Okay. So she's by no means somebody who was laissez-faire. She is right, right. But it was um, that it, it was just that's what it was. Now, I, right. Um. And that seemed to be un- uninteresting 
Uh, uh, <laughs> right. It was. I know people ask my my childhood. I'm like, it is so boring. I went home. I ate my milk and cookies because that hadn't been demonized yet either. And then I either read in my room or I went out to play. You know, found somebody at the park, kickball, four square, looking for four leaf clovers, just drawing. You just had free time. I mean, I, indoors and outdoors. Yeah. So you know, part of that for, on my end was also, you know, my dad's a, a surgeon, but at the time he was in medical school. We had very little money. We mm-hmm. didn't have very much stuff. We just it was like if you didn't go mm-hmm. outside and make fun out of what you had, there wasn't a lot you could like what are you going to do? There was TV, you yeah. know. But yeah, but like it. yeah. and it's funny cuz you know, TV, it's like you'd get home, you could watch like Transformers or something for like <laughs> a 2-hour block maybe <laughs> from like 3 to 5 and then primetime starts and it's boring again. So, mm-hmm. but it, you know, is that the picture? Like, like round this out for me from your perspective. Like, what is this right. childhood that's that's um? And obviously, every kid's different. Every environment's different. But um, well, what, what are we trying? Is, what is, what did we have before that's being lost? All right, I think what you're asking is yes. So, first of all, was there something good about that? Was there something um, whole, not just wholesome, but sort of foundational? about having that free time and having time with friends that was pretty much unsupervised where you had to make something happen. And if something went wrong, gosh, sometimes at my lectures I would ask people um, to talk in small groups about a time when something went really wrong when they were kids. And the stories are just great. And I'll just tell you um, two really fast. Uh, one was that a a, a woman, but when she was a girl, she and her friends were riding their bikes down or a bike down uh, this steep hill that was covered with pine needles. And so it was even, you know, more slick because of the pine needles. And so she was getting towards the bottom and she went to grasp the, I, I'm sorry, there's like somebody doing something on their own outside right now too. Like, I don't know why leaf blowers are louder than, you know, blasting off to the moon, but they are. Sounds fine. Anyways. Keep going. Okay. I shall. So, um, so she's going down the hill and it's getting really fast and she sees, you know, the street is before her. So she, she squeezes the, the hand brakes, you know, like I gotta stop. And when she does that, the handlebars come off in her oh. hands. <laughs> yeah. Right. So suddenly it's like a cartoon. She's holding the handlebars and the bike is speeding to the street and she has one choice. And so she throws herself off the bike into a bush, gets all scratched up. Um, you know, it was, it was painful. But then they go and they get the bike and uh, they put the handlebars back on and they uh, fix it a little stronger. And, of course, they spent the rest of the afternoon doing more of the same. And um, and then another guy told me about – I'm just going to put these two together in a second. But another guy who's I think a school – either a principal or a superintendent talked about um, when he was a kid, he and his family and, and some other family friends and, and kids went on some kind of hike. And he and his friend got completely lost and when they finally stumbled out of the woods, they realized they were really far from where they were supposed to be. And so what did they do? They hitchhiked back to where they were supposed to be and then just sauntered in. And what was interesting is I said, okay, how many of you told your parents about this? You know, what did you tell your parents? And and everybody raised their hand. No one had told their parents. <laughs> and when I asked, find out, oh, another kid had, had done mumbly peg and there, the, the knife had gone. It's when you sort of do darts except with a knife towards other people's feet which does sound like a horrible idea um but anyway mumbly peg is the name of this game peg yeah or lawn darts jarts whatever you want to call it it's dumb don't do it i'm not endorsing it that's not what let grow stands for but here's what we do stand for one kid well almost what we stand for actually erase that we don't stand for this but here's what happened (laughs) one kid got a knife 
in his foot. And so the kids had to bring him in inside the house and they sort of surrounded him as they as he limped up the stairs so the parents wouldn't see, you know, and then he like limp, 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 limp. Finally, he's at the top of the stairs and they shove him in the shower and they wash off his foot and they put on band-aids and then they cup, you know, they they surround him again as he limps, hops, limps, hops, limps, hops back down. Um, and, and, and nobody, even that kid, nobody told their parent what had happened that day, you know, almost crashed into the street, hitchhiked with strangers, you know, got stabbed with a knife. And I asked why not. And of course, the reason was then our parents wouldn't let us do it anymore. So what's, why would we be suggesting that that's an important part of childhood? And the reason is that you can see how they grew up that day. Everybody realized after an incident like that how incredibly resourceful they are, how resilient, how brave, how clever, and how grown up. They handled it themselves. And so Let Grow is is concerned that when there are parents with children all the time, whether it's a coach, an actual parent, a, a nanny, um, you know, somebody involved – who is trying to straighten things out and take care of the issues and, oh, my God, did you get hurt and let me help you, that kids never get that foundation of of adulthood, of like, okay, I can handle this. I'm ready for the world. You know, give me the next challenge. Here I am. And so when you ask about your childhood versus childhood today, what we've seen in the past generation or two at this point is – really infantilizing kids by pretending that they can't handle anything we handled. You know, when you ask these same parents who, you know, fell off their bikes or or stabbed their friends through the foot, they don't want that to happen to their kid. And I can understand that. I don't want that to happen to my kid either. But I also don't want them to not have any experiences where you can look back on your childhood and say, that was formative. That's when I really rose to the occasion. That's when I became a little more grown up. And so what we have to do is come up with ways that work for our era now, the 21st century, where parents feel okay giving some freedom and independence back to their kids and kids take it um, even though not everybody else might be doing it yet. And so if, if the first question is how did we get to this point, I can whip us through four or five reasons I think that we're so much more afraid than our parents were. But then we can talk about what happens when you don't have the experience ever of something going wrong, even dramatically wrong, or something going right, and you made it happen. You organized the game. You know, you you got everybody convinced that you should play it backwards and start at third base, then second base, then first base. If you don't have any chance to organize people, make something happen, change the rules, get buy-in, you know, make your own teams, make your own friends, solve your own problems, you're missing out on – um, the reason Mother Nature gave this drive to kids to play, to create, to do is so that they would learn all these lessons and be prepared for adulthood. She made it fun enough. Mother Nature made play fun so that kids would do all this hard work of dealing with fear and frustration and confusion and um, betrayal. And then once you've dealt with all of that because you want to keep playing with your friends, you want to go back outside, then you are um, – then you're ready for the world. So – I'm happy to talk about the reasons we got here and how to get back and why. Those are that's a great outline. Um, <laughs> I think we will do that. One thing that, that that strikes me, you know, as you're talking about sort of the um, 
Mother Nature's provision of fun in play mm-hmm. is a. Uh, there are two things that came to mind when you said that. One was that I believe you know animals play as pups. Yeah, and that, all animals. Play. And it's um, and you watch them, and they're playing, and they're. It's not. It, it, it's 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 rum. You know roughhousing or whatever you want to call it, but it's for its own sake. It's not towards some obvious immediate survival end. Right. But if you happen to believe in evolution, it's got some mm-hmm. purpose most likely, and I think you, right. you're really touching <clears throat> on it there. Yeah, no, I, one of the coolest things I learned in reading about play, and especially with working with Peter Gray, Dr. Peter Gray, who is one of the co-founders of Let Grow. Um, he's an evolutionary psychologist. And also another one of our founders, by the way, is Jonathan Haidt, who you mentioned, who um, wrote, co-wrote the, the Coddling of the American Mind. Anyways, in, in learning about free play, think about these three things that all kids do. We all play tag, right? We all play hide-and-go-seek, and we all make forts or or tents or little dens is what they call them and uh, right didn't you do all oh, those things i the fort making pops out because <laughs> i can't most- even i can't even count how many times <laughs> i created forts it was it, and a lot of times it was just the dining room chairs some sheets mm-hmm. and belts mm-hmm. sheets yes and yes. you know you'd kind of get them far enough apart that you know, you're trying to find just the right distance of the chairs so that the sheet would, right. would create a, a, a decent roof, but also cover the sides. And if you brought your right. comforter down, it was too heavy yeah. and it would collapse on you. And or then you'd, yeah. you or you really wanted the comforter, and then you'd have to get a bunch of books to put on the chairs. Like, I mean, man, that was like right. you were building. yeah, yeah. You were testing. You were a little engineer at that point. <laughs> but but so think about what we needed as like apes and prehumans and early humans. Hide and go seek makes sense, right? You are going to hide, right? If you are trying to get away from, you know, an animal or a person who's going to hurt you, you got to hide. Um, tag and the seeking part are all going after something that you need, possibly dinner. And then forts are shelter. And so what's really neat to me is that these drives that we keep doing today, you know, the kids love to do today, come from prehistoric time like the dawn of humankind right yeah you gotta you gotta find your prey you gotta hide so you're not the prey and then you gotta gotta have a place to hide so that to me is so cool that that this drive for play is teaching kids everything that they're going to need to know to survive and then as we got more complex um our play got more complex and when you talk about all animals playing they do animals uh, like ants and i don't know how anybody studied this but supposedly ants play fight i don't know how you study that and i'm happy (laughs) it's not me but somebody studied this okay and hippopotami do backflips in the water just seemingly for fun and um, I got this, this information from Dr. Stuart Brown, who's another play researcher. And he said that um, even gazelles will go and basically do what we were talking about before. We'll do the sort of hide-and-go-seek tag thing where they chase each other um, across, the, uh, across the African plains. And, you know, that seems like a stupid idea when you think about it for a second because here they are. They're these little delicious animals scampering across the grass where anybody could come and eat them, right? So they're they're leaving themselves open to predators, little literal predators, and they're wasting all the calories that now they're going to have to go and eat more, um, you know, whatever gazelles eat. And so why don't they just 
sit next to their mom and quietly read a book, you know. Um, and, and the reason must be that for evolutionary purposes, even though it seems more dangerous to be out there running and, um, you know, literally out there running and playing, Mother Nature still programmed them to do it. And so for reasons of survival, it is more important to play than to even be safer just doing nothing. And that's the same with us. For evolutionary reasons, it is more important that our kids organize games, make those forts, play tag, understand how scary it is to be, you know, hunted, but then the, you know, the exhilaration and frustration of being it and chasing after your friends and deciding whether the ball was in or out and um, getting your yayas out and dis- and even figuring out what the game is that you're going to play or even when you're playing imaginary games and we're all dogs and then I say, wait a minute, I don't like this game and you're and like, roof, 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 roof. You know, you can't be, you know, you have to concentrate on on your job as a person in that game is to pretend to be a dog and that requires just incredible self-control and focus and so all these skills that Mother Nature wants us to get or that, you know, evolution wants us to get, whatever you want to call it, are put there in play. And when you have somebody saying, okay, team, gather up. Do I want the blue team? You're playing the outfield. Uh, you know, uh, Sean, you're going to be uh, shortstop today. And let's start with the, you know, the red team's going to go first. Okay, batter up. No, hold your hands like that. That is, looks like a game, looks like play. But in fact, it's a class taught by an adult, organized by an adult, and in it, you will learn how to hit better, and you will probably learn how to catch better. But you won't learn all the things that we were just talking about, the, you know, the, the creativity and the, um, the compromise that you come up with with your friends or the democracy that you build when you say, let, this is so boring, let's play it with two balls at once. Who wants to play it that way? Who doesn't? You know, who's going to be the captain of the team? All these important skills for getting along in the office, at college, you know, with your wife, with your husband, are only there when you and your friends are making something happen. And that's why we have to get parents and adults somewhere in the background or away from the kids as they muddle through the age-old process of playing and becoming fully human. I, um, I'm struck by... The ultimate pattern recognition for me, which is seeing emergent order in everything. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that that groping discovery process that you just described, mm-hmm. which, you know, it stands in this stark contrast to sort of scientific planning. And that like and what I mean by that is like, mm-hmm. oh, a bunch of experts that may or may not <laughs> that, who could and probably want to wear white lab coats. <laughs> um, d- d- determine scientifically what is optimal for us and lay it out with rigorous detail and exacting precision and then um, and then we're supposed to follow that plan and that's called science and- well you know uh, sorry you're talking about science which I see but I'm actually talking about something even a little I, I mean I think there's there's two things going on I think that we do keep looking to science to tell us exactly how many ounces of, you know, berries our children should get at dinner for their brain development or whatever. But I'm also talking about um, really just uh, when you say optimal, you know, 
the adults in charge think it's optimal if you don't fall off your bike and if you don't end up, you know, with a with a a knife wound in your foot and if you don't end up having to hitchhike. And so what they're doing, whether scientific or not, is they're just trying to make sure that nobody's hurt, no one's feelings are hurt, no one's body is hurt, nobody's confused or feels afraid, when actually the optimal thing that happened to all these adults that I asked, you know, what went wrong when you were playing, was that something did go wrong, and there was nobody around to help them, and they muddled their way through, and therefore became, you know, more... uh not just confident, like more ready for whatever else is coming next. So if we are trying to, I mean, there's, there's two ideas of optimal. One is nobody was hurt. Everybody got a trophy and the snacks were organic. You know, that's optimal. (laughs) Everybody went home, you know, everybody's smiling, but there's this other optimal, which is that, you know, the coach didn't show it started raining. We didn't have a ball. And so we used a coconut and it was so muddy that we played slide tag and, uh, you know, Ferdinand twisted his ankle and uh, we, we rode him home on a makeshift bike. So, you know, so what is optimal when nothing goes wrong or when something goes wrong and your kids rise to the occasion? I, I think it's the latter. But it's very scary and you can never recommend it because people going, what? You're saying twisting their ankle and they're out in the rain and their clothes are muddy and everybody's frustrated, uh, you know, and they only had a coconut to eat or play with? It's – um. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the thing that's so it's what makes it so difficult. I think for people to um, appreciate the underlying process that you're talking about, this discovery process, is that it's unplanned and that it's um. Mm-hmm. There's no guarantee that you're going to have a good learning lesson thing mm-hmm. where you where it, it ends up that you kind of figured something out. It might just be that you get hurt and it sucks. Or that mm-hmm. nothing happens at all, and mm-hmm. uh, we're so worried about leaving life up to chance. And if somebody, mm-hmm. if we can s- sort of learn that, oh well, we need to go into preschool and we need to start our workbooks in kindergarten. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm reminded of um, when Matteo, our son, went went uh, was in kindergarten. He went mm-hmm. to the little ca- a little Catholic school down the street in in Verona, New Jersey, Our Lady of the Lake, and mm-hmm. um, it was it, at one level it was super familiar to me i went to 12 years of catholic school and, the, mm-hmm. and saint um oh i think it was like saint mary agnes like the 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 principal had like the most perfect nun name ever yeah right <laughs> but he was he was miserable and they had him doing worksheets and the and the and the kindergarten teacher was kind of high stress and would yell at the kids but he was like learning like like quote, i'm going to put this in scare quotes quote unquote learning <laughs> Right. And I, I talked to the principal and I said, why? I said, let me for first, let me make sure I'm not misremembering. Mm-hmm. I remember my kindergarten was basically nonsense. It was socialization <laughs> time. It was like I mm-hmm. went in, you, you played a bunch of games, you went outside, you did some finger mm-hmm. paint or something. There was a mm-hmm. little bit of structure. It was basically babysitting. But you were with other kids and that was kind of the point. Mm-hmm. Am I am I misremembering that? Was that actually like preschool? She's like, no, no, that's true. I said, well, that seems pretty good, and this seems kind of horrible and miserable. Why are you doing it this way? Mm-hmm. And she said, well, honestly, I agree with you. Oh. The problem is, the parents demand that we 
stay in lockstep with what's the public school's current approach and and this is what kindergarten has become it's like become like second grade has shifted down to kindergarten right right and if we don't do that the, the parents won't tolerate it they need they, they we are we you know we have to at some level make the make our make parents happy and mm-hmm. um and deliver what they're expecting and so that's why we that's why we do this and I, and i was so when we moved to austin mm-hmm. we i actually we actually had mateo repeat uh, no, he didn't repeat kindergarten. We were thinking about having him repeat kindergarten, but he started at a Waldorf school. Mm-hmm. And Waldorf, they don't even expect you to be able to read until third grade. Mm-hmm. And it's a totally different um, uh, pace for the early years that really, to me, feels more intuitive. Uh, that it's a lot more freeform and play, play-driven and th- and physical. And it's not quote-unquote rigorous education (laughs) and um it just seems to me like what the stuff you're talking about feels so much more like learning Mm -hmm. than than what is called school (laughs) right than another worksheet yeah i mean what's nice is that today there are so many people studying the disconnect between sort of drilling learning and actual, sometimes they call it experiential learning. I mean, I'm not really up on the um, educational phrases, but more and more people, I mean, it's a day, I don't think a day goes by without somebody sending me some article from somewhere, you know, Canada, England, Australia, or here about how just because you can get kids to recognize their numbers or their letters at three or four doesn't mean that they're better readers at eight, nine, or ten. And so the idea, the push for early kindergarten readiness and kindergarten is like third grade and, you know, first grade is like seventh grade or whatever, it's it's pointless because you don't end up further along later on. And so to give kids the time that they need to do what we were just talking about before with play, you know, figure out how something works, make a friend, um, deal with an argument, uh, work together to build something. All of that stuff is giving you not only the social emotional skills that are completely missing from a worksheet, but a lot of the actual real world learning you need. You know, you know that if you build it too tall, it falls. Okay. You're learning a little bit about structure. You're learning about how the world works. You're learning about gravity. Um, you know, you start making a, a necklace and you go every other thing, you know, it goes peanut ball, peanut ball, and you're learning, you know, uh, pattern recognition. So the idea that nothing is learned except when it is didactically taught, it's like if I say pattern recognition, it sounds boring. If I say make a pretty necklace using, you know, these two things, then it's fun. And I don't even like saying make a pretty necklace out of these two things because kids should figure out what they want to make the necklace out and it doesn't have to be pretty. But uh, it's it's a really, I mean, at, at base, one of the things that we're talking about at Let Grow is, is a lack of trust. And there's a lack of trust in communities. You know, I can't send my kid out there. There's a lack of trust in our own parenting. Oh, my kid will never be able to figure that out. And then there's a lack of trust in um, the way kids have learned for the first million years of evolution, which is observing parents, playing with their friends, trying things, coming up with something that interests them. And so they learn a little bit of focus and a little bit of frustration tolerance. And um, the idea that kids aren't learning except when they're being taught, okay, put your name in the left-hand top of the paper, and now I want you to turn to page one and answer those questions. 
that's a very, it's a very, like, it's a tiny little thread of the way kids learn. And then there's all these other ways by experience, by feeling something, by trying something, by watching somebody, by watching and trying to emulate what they're doing. I mean, we're, we're built to learn. And to think that we're only built as like, um, these machines that have to have this information stamped into us by an authority at their pace and what they find important is, is new. I mean, you know, even, even school is pretty new compared to the, you know, the history of human evolution. I, um, you know, coming back to this, uh, idea that, you know, what you, what you did in your free time was really important, um, or at least it could be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, like, I don't want to project that my own personal experience is somehow importantly canonical in some way, but I thought school kind of sucked, especially yeah. K through 12. Right. It, it was just boring. The amount of time that you spent in things that you knew, even as an, at an early age, were basically useless to you. And it wasn't even so much that you knew that, well, I'm learning how to learn or these like phrases that mm. get thrown around. No, you're critical not. Critical thinking. That's, that's, that's <laughs> not critical thinking. That's just, that's memory. It's in, in and out memorization lost over the summer. And mm-hmm. so out of it all, this, you know, the, there was experiences all along the way that were obviously important and you can't really, you can't, it's really hard to, after the fact, say which were more important than the others. Mm-hmm. But it's, and I, this is something that's, um, come to me more in in the past several years and maybe the past decade than immediately in it or immediately after it that the entire idea of school as it has come to be constituted seems ridiculous <laughs> and <laughs> and if you say that people look at you like you're crazy well, it's like you're like you're like a homeschooling libertarian whack job or something. But if you stop and think about your own daily life, none of it resembles the patterns of. A, and, you know, I went to Catholic school, but it was very typical. It was like, tip, you know, it was mm-hmm. very much like many other sort of normal school experience. And um, and I think people then say there's a story that gets told then, which is. Well, look, our public schools in America built the middle class. It's like, well. Even if that's true, what those schools were a hundred years ago is not what they are today. <laughs> they don't have; they bear almost no resemblance to them, except in the ways in which they haven't changed physically. Like you still have somebody mostly standing in front of the class barking at the kids, but um, you know the country kind of got built with these little one-room schools that were woven into the rest of life, and you you know. And you had apprenticeships and you just there was all this richness because this, the reading, writing and arithmetic was relatively simple. And mm-hmm. um, again, we sort of technocratted our way to this thing. And now we've <laughs> extended it out so that college is like the most important thing in the entire world. And if you don't start at the right preschool in Manhattan, you're not going to get into mm. 
Columbia. And do you remember that story? I just have to interrupt. Do you remember the story about the mom who was suing the preschool in Manhattan because her four-year-old had been spending time with two-year-olds? And she said, how is my kid going to get into Harvard? She literally said that, you know, by basically being dragged down by these toddlers at age four. And what I want to – I don't really, know about that. It was a great story. I mean, boy, uh, the New York Post just had a field day. But um, – what I love, one of the things I love about Peter Gray, who talks about how kids learn, is that he really emphasizes the idea you were sort of suggesting in uh, talking about the one-room schoolhouses that we've we've separated the ages. You know, if you're a four-year-old, you're with other four-year-olds, and if you're an eight-year-old, you're with the other eight-year-olds. But when you have kids playing in mixed-age groups, that's when so much learning takes place. And that four-year-old, little does that mom realize, you know, yanking her kid out of that school, probably the worst thing she ever did, um, if only because now we all know this mom, but also because the four-year-old who gets to rule over those two-year-olds because she's got, you know, she's twice their age, for God's sake. And she can say, okay, I want you all over here, and now you're going to come, and I'm the queen, and you're all the, you know, the, the worker bees or whatever. It's so great to have different ages together. The older kids learn how to lead and the younger kids learn how to, like I was saying earlier, hold themselves together. They don't want to look like babies in front of this ultra cool four-year-old or ultra cool eight-year-old. And then I, I just have to get back to the Lecro play club again. When you have these mixed age kids playing together after school and you have a kid who's nine and he's not popular in his class and maybe he's a little slow or maybe he's awkward, who knows. But he goes out to this play club for three hours after school and the six-year-olds see him and he scoops him up and he gives them each a piggyback ride and they're hanging on his leg and they're cheering when they see him. That is a changed, that's a changed kid and it's a changed uh, learning experience for him as opposed to just going into that class and being the slow one and hating school and waiting for your 20 measly minutes of recess after you're hastily gulped down lunch and instead you have the, the luxury of being somebody else and having all these other skills the better parts of who you are you know you can play with and enjoy it's it's so key so you know whether you're going to change the educational system or not what we have to do is at least outside of school give kids way more freedom than they have because a lot of a lot of after school time ends up resembling school you know you're in the class you're learning chess you're learning mandarin you're learning um lacrosse and i like all those things and there's no reason you shouldn't learn them but you need to have some free time too preferably some free time with a bunch of other kids and a bunch of other stuff so that you can not just be who you are as a student in a classroom because you are bored. A lot of kids are bored and a lot of kids have so many other strengths that are not the strength that you ever see because they're bad at filling out worksheets. The it's funny, you know, to connect the dots there, the, um, even those schools in general haven't had the mixed, mixed ages and grades really for our whole lives. Um, mm -hmm. My, my my son's school does now. He goes to the Acton Academy, and and they they're like the, you know, they basically are like the fruits of this whole conversation. Let's do a school like that. That's Acton Academy. Oh, how great! Wow. Um, but you know, Montessori obviously has a two, and it's sort of Montessori based, and so Maria Montessori is just a heroic figure in my mind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but when you would play after school, you would play with your friend, and your friend's younger brother or sister would tag along. <laughs> Yeah, like m m that was me. <laughs> and and then and then you'd have to deal with this interesting dynamic of, 
Well, that they're like an annoying spaz, but they're they're here. And then you come to realize that just because you're not comfortable or that you, this isn't exactly what you want, you've got to figure out how to make the best of it. And then it turns out right. you actually like them and they're fun. And then they're looking and you know, they're looking up to you and and you get to feel that sometimes and then that feels really cool and they're getting all the benefits and sometimes the not so great things about being with the older kids. Right, maybe they have to run your errands, right, hold the ball, you know, right, or go or get the snacks. Or they're exposing you to right. language that maybe your parents wish you didn't hear so young. Or, they're going to hear it, yeah, they're going to hear it. Whatever it is. And, um, and so, you know, so this is this world that I'd like to believe we're not just being romantic about. No, I don't think we're – let me, let me read you. So I just – I'm – I'm tethered to my computer by this headset, so I'm only reaching for the closest book. But the one I'm reading now is a book called Range by a guy named David Epstein. And it says, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. And when we're talking about free time to do things, he said um, that uh, the, the most successful people are the people who do have a range of interest and don't just focus on one thing, for instance, like getting a good score on the, the tests that the, you know, the, the, the standardized tests that schools have to give. So he said, um, scientists and members of the general public are equally likely to have artistic hobbies, but scientists inducted into the highest national academies are much more likely to have avocations outside their vocation. And those who have won the Nobel Prize are more likely still. And so, what and I, I wrote in the parent, in the margin. I wrote, "Tell parents um, <laughs> that, that even when kids like this, it appears that they're scattering and dissipating their energies, while in reality, they're channeling and strengthening them." So, the more that kids have time to like develop these interests and maybe noodle on, you know, you're interested in electronics, and then you get interested in building things, or you're interested in, you know, you have an imaginary life, and then you start writing little poems or whatever. All these things enrich you. They're not detracting you from, um, you know, being a good student or succeeding. They're actually part of success is having um, other interests. And then they eventually, some of them actually enrich whatever you're doing for a living. And then the ones that don't, it, it gives you downtime to enjoy something else. So there's no downside, excuse me, <clears throat> to to giving kids just free time and a lot of stuff to read, explore, build with, play with. That's it. And and that's one of the things we push. Let me just, can I just talk about um, one of the other Let Grow initiatives that I think of as so easy, really, and also um, transformational is the Let Grow project that we're doing in schools. And by we, I mean the teachers are doing it. We just provide um, the materials for free and the materials are just a couple of um, introductory letters and explanations. Everything is free. Um, but the Let Grow project is this, that teachers tell kids that their job, their, their homework, is to go home and do something on their own without their parents. And what this really is, uh, Peter Gray just wrote a, a blog post about it. It's sort of conditioning for the parents. Because the parents are told that they have to let their kids do something on their own, this is, you know, the kid... This is homework, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll jump to it. They, they do. They let their kids finally, you know, walk the dog or run an errand or make the breakfast for the family. And, and, and what I was trying to explain before is only in doing that do they realize, oh, of course my kids are ready and look at what my can, kid can do and, and all this, this pride in their kid. And so you have 
this new feeling about your child. Instead of thinking they have to be protected and can't do anything successfully, now you have the feeling of like, oh my God, they're so great. And so, so the joy sort of takes the place of the fear and the overprotection. But you don't ever feel that joy until somebody has pushed you to let go and let grow. And so the, the let grow project is really a way that you can transform an entire school's worth of kids and parents for no money and no class time. You just send the kids home with this little letter that says, parents, the Let Grow Project is giving kids back some independence and we know it's hard to let go and so this will help you. And and then here's a list of, of ideas that the kids can choose from. You know, they can do anything from, you know, scramble eggs to to, to go to the store and, and get the ingredients for dinner to, you know, go visit grandma or, uh, or, or organize a, a game at the park with a friend. So it's just because everybody is doing it, because all the other parents are doing it, there's none of the judgment like, how come you're letting your kid walk to school? I would never do that. And because there are a bunch of kids doing things outside, then the kids have other kids to play with outside, so it's not so lonely. And then the whole school is transformed at once. And we keep hearing stories about neighborhoods where kids are playing outside again, where they were never doing that before. One, one principal told us in 17 years, she had never seen kids playing on their own outside. But a week after the Let Grow project ended, so they weren't even doing it for their project anymore, she saw kids on their bikes. She saw two kids on their bikes, a kid on roller skates, and a kid on a skateboard on the exact same route that she had traveled for 17 years without ever seeing a kid outside. And we heard from another town where the kids, one kid went to do his, went to get a muffin at the local um, market, and everybody was like, what are you doing here? Where's your mother? Why are you here alone? Because the kid had to be under fifth grade. I don't know what age he was. And he said, I'm doing my like grow project, and he explained what it was, and they're like, mm, all right. But then after him, a bunch of other kids kept coming in, and now it's so normal. And the, the whole staff at the market goes, oh, it's a let grow kid, huh? a let grow kid. Nobody thinks twice about it because we've renormalized the idea that kids can do some things out and about in the world on their own without constant supervision. We're just, you know, we're not trying to recreate your exact childhood or my exact childhood, but we are trying to recreate a recognition that when kids have some freedom, some independence, and some responsibility beyond, the, uh, you know, out of out of the reach of a parent, you know, expected to do something and expected to come home at a certain time, uh, they rise to the occasion and parents realize that always protecting them, always doing everything with them or for them was not necessarily the best for anyone. Not only did it take over all the parents' time, but the kid grows up thinking, oh, that's too hard for me or, oh, I can't do it or the world is too scary or I'm too much of a loser or I have anxiety issues. And if you want, I'll tell you what I just discovered at a at a school where all the seventh graders did the Let Grow Project. It was just... It was it was so strange to me um, how little they'd been allowed to do, and then the transformation afterwards. Yeah, please, I'd I'd love to hear it because it, it's um, and then and then and then I'd like to hear from your perspective how the hell did we get here to a place where behavior that didn't even need a name mm-hmm. has to be consciously cultivated again. Right. And, and, you know, it's not such a drag that has to be consciously cultivated and it takes a lot of time and money and effort. It's just once it is sort of recognized as a good idea, it, it becomes really normal really fast. So here I'm just, I am literally picking up a pile of the papers that, um, these seventh graders filled out when it was asked, uh, so you're going to do your let grow project 
and and the the teacher asked, were any of the challenges? What were any of the challenges that you were afraid or hesitant to try? And I literally have not read these before. I'm reading them to you, so we're just going to go through them. Um, I was scared to buy my bike, ride my bike to Target and buy milk, but I did it anyways. Um, I was I felt like I was going to fall off my bike, or maybe I'm not going to have enough money. Um, I was hesitant to try ironing. Um, I was afraid that I would burn myself or make a mistake. Uh, the biggest challenge. Uh, getting her ears pierced. I can understand that I'm scared of that too. Um, <laughs> uh, these are all backwards. Uh, I was hesitant to go into a store and buy things because I wasn't comfortable going in without my mom. Okay. I was hesitant to try walking my dog alone because I was scared he would get loose from the leash or a scary man would take me since I'm alone. I was afraid to climb a tree because I was scared I was going to fall and break a bone. Um, I was afraid of going into town alone and th- these these kids live in a, a sweet little suburb, um, very, very quiet and very safe uh, because I would uh, I was afraid I was afraid to go into town alone because I could get kidnapped. Um, I was afraid to do a flip. Uh, I was afraid to do a wheelie on my bike because I was scared I might hurt myself. So um, these kids were afraid to go and, you know, go into a pizza parlor because they would have to talk to, quote, unquote, a stranger, which would be the person giving them a slice of pizza. They were afraid to talk to a cashier. They were afraid of crossing the railroad tracks, which are quiet suburban railroad tracks that don't have a lot of trains zooming by at any given time. And what was amazing to me is how everything was seen through the lens of what could go wrong horrifically you know they might hurt themselves they might fall out of the tree they might burn themselves they might burn down the house they might be kidnapped i mean that's classic anxiety that is you know just going straight to that worst case scenario sort of like earlier in our conversation when i had let my kid ride the subway and the and the interviewers would ask how would you feel if he never came home that has become internalized by these kids what if the very worst thing happens to me because i wasn't with an adult. And so as much as the parents need to see that they can let go of their kids, the kids need to see that when they're not with a parent, you know, they're, they are competent. They can do so many things. And, and when they did these things, that was what was so exciting. So these kids did 20 projects over the course of a year because their let grow, because their, their seventh grade teacher was so excited about let grow. And when I went to interview them, they sounded like they'd been through extremely successful therapy <laughs> you know really yeah, they talked about like oh i used to have a lot of anxiety issues or i really don't like to come out of my comfort zone or i'm a very nervous person but and then they said you know i would never go on rides at disney but then i made myself do it for the let grow project now i love the rides at disney um i got to take care of my little sister for um one morning when my parents were busy and they were out of the house and i got to put her on the bus by her I got to put her, my five-year-old sister, on the bus, and I, I'd never felt like that before. I felt I was important to someone. And one girl I asked, so what are you doing automatically now? <clears throat> Excuse me. I got a cough again. Actually, maybe I'll just sip my coffee. Yeah, again. yeah. Take a quick drink. We, <clears throat> I'll do both. We, we've got little notes for editing out uh, coughing. Mm. Coughing and coffee. Um, so one of the girls, um, I don't have her quote in front of me. But uh, I said, what are you doing automatically now? Because I thought she'd say, like, she's automatically getting herself up, right, or automatically packing her own lunch or something like that. And she said, well, I feel like I, I don't automatically think about what the worst thing that could possibly happen could be. And now I sort of think about what's the best thing that could happen. Like, I could have the best time. 
And she said, it sort of changed my thinking a little bit. And I'm like, no, it changed your thinking completely. (laughs) You've gone from, you know, really neuroses. What terrible thing could happen because I'm bad, because I didn't do things right, because I screwed up, and now it's going to all be terrible? That's neurotic. To I could have a great time. I wonder what's happening next, which is not only well-adjusted, it's optimistic. And who wouldn't want that for their kids? And what I feel bad about is that parents think that I'm blaming them, but I'm never blaming them because this entire class of 120 kids, almost all of them were afraid to do something that you and I would have done at a much younger age without a second thought. You know, walked to town, had a play date, you know, uh, made cookies, something like that. So it's not like if if 120 kids are all experiencing the same thing, it's not like they have individual crazy nut job parents. It's a culture that has told parents that they must be worried every second of the day that their kids are in danger. And and it is it is such a it is that's the story of our era. There's another book I love called How Fear Works by Frank Ferradi, F-U-R-E-D-I. And he says that different eras have different stories. And our story is a mom or sometimes a dad, but a parent took their eyes off their kid and something tragic happened, which is why if you're actually clicking on a news show and you see the anchor person and behind them is a picture of a of a playground, the story you automatically assume they're going to tell you is of a kid who got molested or kidnapped from the playground. You never think new playground opening or, um, you know, kid does triple flip from, from slide and all the other kids are amazed yeah. or, you know, seven leaf clover found at the playground. It's always seen through the lens of what the story we expect. And if you've been, if you've been poisoned by this story as a parent, then you have to raise your kids holding them so tight because if you don't, you think that they're going to die. And so let grow. Realize that talking to people and changing minds and making people realize, wow, that's interesting. I didn't think about it. That's true. There is a through line. There is a storyline that we're constantly told, and I bet that is unfair and it probably isn't true. That That's fine to start thinking that way, but you, you really have to be pushed into letting them go, making the parents let go of their kids before they recognize how wonderful it can be to do more of that. So I went from free-range kids telling people that we've been sort of poisoned by fear, by a culture that pretends to be optimistic but is very pessimistic and always comes up with new ways that, you know, that parents are told that their children could get hurt if they, you know, they drink the wrong milk or they go to the wrong school or they hear a bad word or they read an awful book or they're... um or they're riding their bike and you're not with them. So we're told all these things could hurt their kid, hurt our kids. And therefore the only answer is to be with them all the time and intervene in every situation. That's how we've been, um, brainwashed and people understand that probably even from this podcast as we've been talking about it. But until they are pushed to change their behavior, their behavior can't change because they're still held in that straight jacket of fear. So let grow is, opening the, the straight jacket very quickly and letting everybody out. And once they're out, they're breathing and they're going like, this is great. I'm not going back to that straight jacket. But somebody has to open it. And that's what the Let Grow Project does. And that's what the Play Club does. That's what we do when we um, 
encourage parents to come to let grow and talk amongst each other about like, can I let my seven-year-old play outside? Yes, I did. It was great. Okay, I'm with you. I support you. And if something goes wrong, we're not going to blame you because we understand that not parents can't control everything. And so there's not that burden either. And so let grow is just really dedicated to changing, to pushing a behavior change that makes everybody so much more free, so much more happy, competent, confident, and ready for life. Of course, I love all of that. <laughs> it's so important. It's so, um, for whatever reason, I've, um, it's resonated with me in this deep and fundamental way. And so the, you know, the question, the natural question is, how did we get here? Mm-hmm. You know, how did we get, yeah, I, you know, people, people jokingly say stranger danger now, like it's, it's already moved. It's kind of like woke, like it's already, Slightly ironic, it's already yeah. moved into the like ironic kind of silly phrase mm-hmm. Because of, and it only takes like six months from for, for something to go from not existing to being cool to being ironic. But <laughs> there was no stranger danger as a phrase growing up. H- how did we get here? And I'll I'll save you the one thing that I you know that I know um you know that you're one of the great advocates for, which is the world has never been safer, especially in the United States, than it is right now. It's like you know so right. so the facts. Never been a safer time to be a kid in America. It's the right. facts do not support fear. Uh, school shootings, not actually a statistical problem more than getting hit by lightning. So, yes, they're terrible. They're the worst thing in the world. As a parent, my heart goes out. But mm-hmm. it's also terrible when a kid gets hit by lightning. Similar odds. How did we get to this culture? Mm-hmm. Well, I'll, I'll tell you the five or six things that I think, um, you know, going from pretty obvious to possibly esoteric and wrong. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> the first thing, really, cause I just keep wondering about this myself. Um, so obviously the first thing to blame is what we always blame, which is the media. Uh, when you and I were growing up, it was a less intensive media landscape. Uh, when I was growing up, there wasn't even cable yet. Um, but then came cable and then after cable came the internet. And the more competition you have, uh, the more you have to scream something scary so that people will watch what you're presenting. And so – it bleeds, it leads. Not only that, if it, if it involves an innocent child who was hurt by, by parental negligence, that's like a gold mine. And this, this wasn't even recognized. Uh, the, one of the very first cases, uh, that caught the American attention in terms of predators really was the Aton Pates case, which was uh, a boy who was kidnapped from a bus stop in 1979 in my city, New York. Right. And when, uh, when he disappeared, the working um, theory for at least a month, uh, according to a book called Kidnapped by Paula Fass, uh, where she sort of outlines the history of American child kidnapping, strangely enough, um, the the working theory was that some lovelorn woman had picked him up from the bus stop to raise as her own. That was what we went to immediately back. I mean, you can laugh, but that just shows what a different time we're talking about. 1979, the word predator still meant lion, okay? It did not mean person. And so it was only about a month or something into the uh, the case 
that the police leaked that, well, you know, maybe it wasn't a lady. Maybe it was a guy and strangely, maybe he was sexually interested. And, and, and that was like a match to a gas tank. What? Said the public, you know, not that we had never heard of anything bad going on before, but this was the first really, you know, nationally televised case where we started talking about how there might be, um, you know, people out there who want to harm kids sexually and then and then hurt them, murder them. So that was so awful, and and it it just ignited every fiber of our being you know it made us outraged it made us sympathetic it made us vengeful it made us fascinated it's a little titillating even though we don't you know we don't approve but it is like oh my god it's sex and kids and murder and you know evil and all wrapped up into one so that was that was the beginning of this and then a few years later um adam walsh's case happened he was murdered and then his father john walsh started uh uh, what is it? The missing show, America's Most Wanted. Right. We put the, the they put the pictures of missing children on milk cartons. So anybody growing up in the eighties started, you know, eating their cornflakes in the morning with a picture of a kid who was missing, who was about their age, and it never said on the milk cartons. Of course, most of these kids um, were taken in custodial battles between divorced parents or runaways, they, in, leaving us to assume that these kids were all stolen off the streets. And then there were there were incorrect numbers bandied about that 50,000 children every year are kidnapped. No, it's about 100, but um, by strangers. So it was just we really got the, the wrong impression that to leave your house was to, you know, go out into hell where there were, you know, lascivious and awful people ready to, to pounce on your kid. Well, so, and it's also that – all of that taps into this um, deep primordial level survival instinct that 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 mm-hmm. is, you know, um, it is what it is. It's kept us alive. It's why humans are still here, probably. But it also mm-hmm. is the reason why we have like loss aversion. Why I'm more I, right, I'm more right. likely to to want to protect myself from losing something i have than risk getting something new like the this Mm -hmm. this, it's this really deep visceral thing that i think underpins that that um that uh, that that bias towards negativity i think right we have a total bias towards negativity and um the thing that i want to emphasize is that it's not like um our parents didn't care if we lived or died and didn't have this same deep instinct to protect us and and keep us around. So obviously something else changed. And that's why I'm talking about the media saturation because my mom was a stay-at-home mom and desperately wanted us to, you know, have a good childhood. That's why she quit her job. And yet at age five, I was allowed to walk to school because she hadn't been – told yet this that generation of parents hadn't been told you are a bad mother for letting your children out of your sight and so she did because it was normal to let your kids play outside it wasn't like she thought that there were no kidnappers or no crime ever occurred in the history of the world until you know till now it was just that it um as much as she wanted to keep me alive and as all parents are driven to to um, protect their children Protection hadn't been redefined as never let them out of your sight. 
And I think with the milk cartons, it became never let them out of your sight. Well, and if it, if you're if you're, I mean, the, the the funny thing, of course, is that if you're growing up as a young kid in like either the '60s or '70s, it actually was just statistically more dangerous than it is right now. So that's the... right. That's true. That's true. And people sometimes say it's uh, everything's safer now because we're helicoptering the parents. So don't tell me it's safer now, but. Crime against adults is down too. I mean, uh, burglary, arson, rape, murder, assault are all down against adults and, and crime is down against kids. But we're not helicoptering the adults. So you just have to accept the fact that we actually are living in uh, statistically safer times than when we parents were growing up. And it's not just thanks to helicoptering. It's just thanks to a crime rate that has been going down. In my city, New York, uh, it was – we had about 2,000 murders at the peak of, a, of the crime wave, which was the same peak for a, across the country. But in our city, it was about 2,000 murders a year, and now it's down to about 300. And that's an incredibly enormous drop, obviously. And yet, if you ask most people, is crime going up or down, people still think it's going up. People keep thinking it's going up every year, even when it's been going down for 25. Well, and even and, – and as you pointed out, even at, at the peaks, the um – the stats are kind of like lies. So it's so you're being, you're hearing there's fifty thousand um, missing yeah, that kids, was really wrong. but there's only a hundred who've been kidnapped by a stranger, and all of the rest are their their father or mother in a, in, a, in a custody battle or, or right or be home by three and the kid forgets and goes to his friend's house and then they call the police where are they and it turns out that they went to the park or whatever yeah i mean i hate getting caught up in the numbers but i will give you one amazing statistic before i go on to the other reasons that i think we're more afraid and that is that if you wanted your child for some reason to be kidnapped and held overnight by a stranger in america how long would you have to keep them outside like unattended, un, un, you know, unwatched by you, uh, for this to be statistically likely to happen. And this is a number that was crunched for me by um, a guy named Warwick Cairns in England who wrote a book called How to Live Dangerously. But how long would you have to keep them outside with you not watching over them before it was statistically likely that they would be kidnapped by a stranger? I, I don't want to guess. Just give me – I'm, sure I'm sure it's something that's going to be shockingly shocking number. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, a shocking number for me is when sometimes people say a day or an hour. But the actual answer and um, is 750,000 years. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, is it a million years? <laughs> it's yeah, probably <laughs> not quite. No, no, no. It isn't. But it is – I mean it's sort of like saying how many – how many tickets do you have to buy to win Powerball? But the point is to, just to try to keep it in perspective. You know, the number one way kids die is as car passengers. So if you really want to keep your kids safe, just never drive them anywhere. I mean, that's more likely to kill them than anything else that they could be doing as child. But anyway, so so the media, whether it's through milk cartons, cable news, the Internet, or what have you, uh, is making us afraid um, because they, they they love these stories. And when, when we hear them, our brain – grasps them because like you were talking about this is evolution you know if you something is going to kill you you want to know and until about 200 years ago before cameras before photography anything that you saw that was killing somebody was something in your neighborhood that you saw killing somebody your uncle ate that berry and now he's foaming at the mouth or that spider you know bit your cousin and now your cousin is dead so you knew okay spider bad that kind of berry bad but now we get all this information flooding from everywhere from every country from every era from every state and 
and your brain works like Google and you ask, is my kid safe at the bus stop? And up pops Aton or up pops JC Dugard because these are these stories that are easiest to retrieve. And if you're asking your brain, you know, where can I find a cheap ticket to San Francisco? You know, up pop some relevant websites. Um, and, and it's good. And you're glad that you don't have to go through a thousand websites to find, you know, Google flights or whatever. But when you're asking about a crime or safety, up pop the very worst stories because they are seared into our brains and they have video attached and pictures and emotion. And actually, those results are almost the least relevant to your search because they tell you the incredible, awful anomaly and not the fact that, you know, this past year, 120 million children have been going to school every day for 180 days, and none of them were kidnapped from a bus stop. You know, it's funny. My um, uh, my son was asked just over the weekend was saying, "Do you think our dog, when he when he sees images on the TV, yeah. has a sense of if it's what that means?" Um, the the and it, what you're what you're saying just now is so interesting. Because it's not obvious that we know what it means at some levels of our of our consciousness. Right, that you, right, like, right. you know, when you said that, it, right. I've never really had that thought before. The sense that when we see an image on 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 a screen and it's a a, a visceral image and it generates that emotional response, that there's forms of cognition that we have. Mm-hmm. That don't know it's not right in the room with you, that you're not seeing it with your right, eyes. Right, 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 right. There's even stuff that says, um, you know, at a base level, your brain, you know, your fear center can't really tell the difference between fears you've imagined and actual things. Like if you can imagine, like Lenore, how would you have felt if he never came home? So everybody is imagining in their brain, you know, kid taken from a subway station and that becomes almost as real to certain neurons in their brain as um, as if it had actually happened, which it didn't. So now what's number two? So we've got this media. Oh, so I'm me- just going to yeah. whip us through. Yeah, yeah you got the media saturation. And it's obviously the, a huge the, one. It is huge. And going back to the Frank Ferriti point that um, just like if you read a – if you read a romance novel, my sister loves no, romance novels, and there's the mousy secretary and she's working for the sky end of industry and he's very handsome and he's six foot five and, uh, you know, he dictates the letters to her. But you know that by the end, you know, he's going to realize, oh, my God, she takes her glasses off and she's beautiful and I must have her. <laughs> and you'd be you'd be totally like, what the hell is this book if at the end he marries his equally rich next door neighbor who's an Olympian skier and and the, the, the secretary gets to order the flowers for the wedding. That would be a bad romance novel, right? That would not be a romance novel. That would be life. <laughs> so so just like we have an expectation for something and the the industry – make sure that we're satisfied with what it gives us so that we'll keep coming back for more. There is that story of a mom took her eyes off her kid and now something terrible happened. And so, you know, the media is not going to try to re-educate us to the fact that, like, well, actually, most kids are safe. In the next 750,000 years it would take before a child would be normally kidnapped. So instead, if you see a story where nothing bad did happen to a kid, bus leaves child off at wrong bus stop, we'll be, after, you know, we'll be here with the news after this message. And then you come back and there's the news. And the mother is saying, well, I'm just so grateful that he wasn't kidnapped. And the, the chief of police is saying, this is very lucky. He walked home the three blocks, even though he wasn't sure it was the wrong, you know, he's at the wrong bus stop. But we're just very lucky today. So all stories 
no matter how torturously, conform to the idea that something terrible almost happened, could have happened, or did happen because a child was unsupervised. So we get used to a certain storyline. We don't realize that that's our desire is to keep having more of that story, but the media recognize it as a very successful formula, and they keep giving it back to us because we will keep tuning in. So you can't really ignore the fact that the media knows what sells, and it's not just if it bleeds, it leads. It's child was in danger because it was not, um, you know, not under constant supervision. So that's the media. We live in a litigious society. We all start thinking like lawyers. What could go wrong? Whose fault is it? Richland, Washington got rid of all of its swings on all of its uh, schoolyards uh, because they read a study that said that, that swings are the most dangerous equipment. And and of course, once you've read a study and you've heard about it, you think, oh, my God, now what if what if kid falls off? We know that they're dangerous. Let's get rid of it. So once you start thinking like a lawyer, nothing seems safe enough. And we do sort of think that way. We think, what could I be sued for? Whose fault is it? England wanted to get rid of the word accident because <laughs> they wanted everybody to realize that there's always someone at fault. So don't just say it's fate. You know, go back and figure out what, who did what wrong to make this thing happen. So we start feeling very pressured. And uh, I, assume, I assume this England wanted to get rid of the word accident was was in some sort of legal de- definition way, right? Yeah, yes, exactly. Because it would, it would, right, need, really it would need to be right. France for the story to be to get rid of the words to usage in language, society. The actual language, <laughs> yes, right, right. But this is not a French word, right? Um, three, uh, we live in an expert society. Experts are always telling us what we're doing wrong. You can flip through any copy of any parenting magazine, and it will tell you. Things you can't buy, things you shouldn't do, things you must start doing that nobody had to do. Uh, Actually, I had a really fun piece on the blog recently from a mom who wrote for Parents Magazine before she became a mom. And it was all about, you know, make your own baby food and whatever you do, breastfeed till they're 19 and don't have an epidural or your kid will be, you know, sadly lacking in every which way. And then she became a mom and, and only used, you know, cleaning products made out of vinegar, basically. Oh, right. Apple cider and vinegar. Then, it can cure cancer. Yes, it can clean your everything. hardwood floors. It's Right, right. You Boost know. your IQ. Yeah. Um, so then she became a mom. And then she realized, like, oh, my God, this stuff takes tons of time. And I don't want to have to be mashing my own apples that I grew organically in the backyard and dewormed all evening, you know, by flu- by non-fluorescent light. So Behold the discovery uh, of trade-offs. <laughs> My trade-offs and the recognition that nothing has to be perfect. I mean, this idea that if you're feeding your kid the wrong food or reading them, you know, not advanced enough in a book or whatever, that all bets are off. That's just, it's an impossible standard. But the experts are always coming up with new things for us to do or to worry about. Uh, and so that's another reason that parents are worried because we're just living under a tsunami of information. And you were talking earlier about scientific studies, you know, I thought this was fine, but then a new study showed that, no, they should only have two ounces, not seven ounces of whatever, or three hours of reading instead of two and a half hours of reading. There's just a lot of information coming at us. And then there's... Yeah, and and uh, so much of that, I mean, the... uh, 
there's the replication crisis in this world of expertise, whether it's like the psychology and um, epidemiology, the study of disease. It's something like north of 80% in both instances of these papers are non-reproducible. They're basically nonsense. So right, 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 uh, right. And eggs are and, good. And, eggs are bad. Uh, eggs cause cancer. Right, right. No, they're 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 uh, they're they're good. They're they're bad. Right, 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 right. Um, right. Yeah. There's just there is a lot of um, a lot of information, and probably a lot of it's wrong coming at us. But it all comes with the with the exhortation to you know quit doing what you were doing yesterday and do this starting now. And parents are, you know, you think that you're doing fine and then somebody comes over or you're at your mom's group. Oh, no, you're still using a plastic cup. Oh, forget it. All bets are off. <laughs> so there's the experts. And then there's the marketplace, which can, uh, you know, there's no easier dollar for anyone to get than the dollar of a nervous parent who has been told that, you know, if you if you don't buy X, your kid is going to fall behind. But if you do buy X, everything will be fine. And so you were talking earlier about how, you know, parents used to, you know, we used to have kids when we were younger. But now when parents are often older uh, and they have uh, smaller families and maybe two people who are kind of further along in their careers, they have a little more money per kid. You know, if you had dad working at 25 and mom has three kids by 24 or five kids by 24, then, you know, there's not a lot of money and there's not a lot of time. But if you have the money from two incomes coming in, you'll spend it. And so there are all sorts of marketers out there saying, you know, you better buy this this tape or you better enroll your kid in Mommy and Me or you better start them in baby soccer and, and you have the money to do it and so you do. And then suddenly you're, you know, you're busy buying and doing um, a lot of things that um, you've been told you must do or your child will be in danger. So uh, on that on that parent um, on that wealth effect, to to what extent do you also think that being older, having fewer kids, that it's not just about money, but it's also uh, maybe it's not about time. I don't know, but because um, I don't know whether parents have more time for their kids or not on a per kid basis oh i happen to know yeah so so because so, i because I, I there is a little bit and this is a rabbit hole of a question but um there's a little bit of a over in you know brian kaplan's one of my favorite economists and he has this book 10 mm -hmm. uh 10 selfish it's like selfish reasons Reason, to have, more selfish reasons to have, to have more, more kids, kids right. yeah. and he's his basic thesis is don't worry about it we as parents don't actually matter that much according to any data that we have, the twin studies right. and all the rest of it. So right. have lots of kids. Don't spend a lot of money on nonsense like, um, uh, you know, third grade Mandarin classes because that's just a waste of time. They'll turn out great. Have have more kids. Have a blast. Go to Disney World. Um, <laughs> but But instead, what we tend to be doing, it seems like, is being wealthier, having more time, <laughs> and not just investing in scare quotes in our kids more but also investing our own identities in our kids more perhaps um you know living vicariously through them even if many of us wouldn't want to admit that 
is that is that uh, all there? Like, you know, how do you think about that? You stuff? know, I I don't know because that gets dangerously close to blaming parents for being narcissistic or something like that. I, I you know, I I'm sure I live through my kids when they're doing well, and I crumble when they're not doing well. So I'm not sure that that has changed so much. But in terms of um, hours and demands that we make on ourselves, as as opposed to the Brian Kaplan idea that like you know a little hands off is going to be fine. Uh, college-educated moms are spending, I can't remember, seven, eight, or nine more hours a week than moms, college-educated moms, in the 70s. And in the 70s, a lot of them didn't even work, um, but were spending that extra time uh, on child care. Oh, wow. And, yeah, and so even as more women have entered the workforce, and you would think have less time, we are expected to spend more time on our kids and... That's it. So it's just it's become a much more labor intensive job. Part of it is that we're driving them so many places because we feel like they have to be in, you know, in soccer. And then by third grade, it's travel soccer. And then part of it is that um, we just feel like we, you know, we're, we're expected to do their homework with them. You have to do the reading log. You have to work on the science project. And there's just uh, if you can't let your kids do anything on their own, whether it's uh, play outside or walk to school, well, then that means it's parentally supervised time and, and there go your hours. Interesting. So that's really surprising that, that even, yeah. I assume we have far more two parents working than yeah. we did say in the 1970s. And, and sure. yet, no, it is. Wow. It's, it's just, there was a great New York Times, um, article that you can Google and it was called The Relentless Demands of Modern Parenting. It was a front page story, you know, the most read for like a year, basically. <laughs> and it talked about no matter what your economic level, and this is what, where it even gets more outrageous, uh, the assumption is that the best parent is a helicopter parent. And, and one of the questions they gave was, uh, you're trying to make dinner and your kid is drawing. She says, mommy, come draw with me. What do you do? And the vast majority of parents of every economic level, like even single moms without anybody else helping them or providing them with money, said, drop what you're doing and draw with them. And to me, uh, you know, I would hope that people would feel confident enough that your kid is still going to be creative and still going to love you, even if you say, Honey, I got to make dinner because after dinner I have to go back to work. I'm working my second shift or whatever it is. Or, honey, you can draw. You know, it's great. I love your drawing. And and just that you don't have to literally spend every second doing something with or for your child. And I don't think it indicates less love uh, or anything. I just think it indicates the fact that, like, your kid is actually better off with a little bit of uh, independence, even if it's really easy to whine, it is really easy, you know, mom, play with me or do something, I'm bored. And it is hard to just watch them look sullen or sad or bored. Um, it, it is hard and it's hard to see your kid frustrated. And that's why if we can create a culture that gets kids back to expecting a little bit more free time and expecting to make things happen on their own, I think we're all better off. And that's why I don't blame parents because all, you know, you can't say go out and play with your friends if there's nobody else playing outside or if you're worried that you're going to be admonished by your neighbor for your kid being in the driveway when your neighbor thinks that that's, you know, seven years old, she should be inside or you should be outside with her. So we really have to change the culture. So, so what's the next, um, in, in our, in our 
stack of risks, uh, reasons for where we are. Uh, yes, yeah, so I'm going to get to these two sort of amorphous ones. Um, and you can stop me when I sound like I'm too, too spacey or <laughs> incoherent. But uh, one reason is that uh, we feel like we have control. And the there are studies, I hate to always talk about studies, but this one struck me as real, is that uh, the better off you're doing, the more you think it's uh, thanks to your own efforts. And, and often, you know, a lot of that is. But you think that you are in real control. You know, if things are going well, it's thanks to you. If things are a little more chaotic, you recognize that that life is a little um, unpredictable and often unfair. But the more things are going well, the more you think that you have complete control. And so the more you worry that if anything went wrong, it's your fault, right? Because if you have control, why did you let something go wrong? And dovetailing with this um, sort of belief that we control our fates is uh, comes all this new technology that lets us really feel like we're omniscient because we are. We can tell using any kind of uh, all sorts of new technology, we can tell where our kids are at any moment. There are things that can tell you their temperature at any moment. You can hear what there's there's this little uh, sort of watch that you can clap clamp onto your younger child that will um, that acts as sort of a a, a very simple phone and you can call them on it. And if they don't press pick up, Within 10 seconds, it turns into a walkie-talkie, and you can listen to whatever they're saying at the moment. <laughs> the assumption being that if they're not answering, there must be something awful going on, possibly a kidnapping, possibly you're Liam Neeson and can tell the accent of the person saying goodbye. You know, oh, that's Moldova. Um, and so uh, there are there are these little devices you can put on your baby in the crib. It looks like a, an electronic sock. It is an electronic sock that gives you a readout of their temperature movements, um, blood pressure, or no, pulse and blood oxygen level, which is used to be something that you would only, I mean, I don't know by blood oxygen level. Do you know yours? You don't, right? I don't. And I think that that dovetails with this um, other issue of, so we have um, 23andMe and all, we have all this data and it's part of this mentality, this big data mentality that more data is always good and more data will mm-hmm. somehow lead mm-hmm. to the truth, but the truth is not, there's no notion that there's any other way to get to the truth other than through data. Meanwhile, um, a lot of it sends false flags. Mm-hmm. Oh, a lot of false flags. I mean, yes, that's one I of mean, the scariest parts. One of the best examples of this uh, is um, in medicine, right? So you have these... Right. You, have, you, you test for everything and a couple of things come back as like, watch out, watch out. Yeah. I, you know, uh, I believe mammograms are now really looked at as being far more likely to generate the kinds of false positives that can lead to mm-hmm. actual unnecessary surgeries. Mine did. <laughs> Raising my hand. Oh, so, yeah. So, yes. so you can – so there's this – it's very counterintuitive, but it's I, I think it's like one of our modern era problems of we can – it's not what we know. It's what we know that isn't so. And a lot of the data isn't so. Yeah. Um, I think you're right that we are awash in data. Um, some of it will inevitably be alarming. Uh, the point I was trying to make, and I think it, it matches up with yours, is that when we have all this information coming from our kids um, and that we can now 
you know, what they ate at lunch. You can know their grades on their most recent quiz. You can do something where you can see every text that they wrote and every website that they visited. Schools are doing this now too. You feel like you are omniscient because you know things that no parent could have ever known in the history of the world, including, like I was saying, the, where they are at any given moment, right? You can GPS them at any given moment. And this sort of goes back to the idea of control. If you know everything that's going on, then you should be able to prevent anything bad from going on. And so instead of making you feel, um, you know, at peace with the world and a peace of mind because you know all this. In fact, it's like, wait a minute, is that temperature a little too high? And, you know, her heart is beating fast. Does that mean she's running or is she scared? Oh, she didn't do well on that test. Should I go and talk to the teacher? Oh, um, you know, the GPS thing is dead. Oh, my God, is she dead too? It just, instead of making you feel confident, it makes you feel like if anything's going wrong, you should have been aware of it and taken care of it because you had the means to know. So you're given omniscience, but unlike God, you're not given omnipotence and you feel like you should have that omnipotence and you feel like there's no sympathy if, if something bad does happen to your kid, it's why weren't you paying attention? Why didn't you, you know, why weren't you checking the gizmo that would have told you? And so it really puts this enormous pressure on parents. Uh, I was just writing about this the other day. That, like if when I would go and like if I was lost at the fun fair or something and my mom had to spend half an hour looking for me, she could tell this story to Florence, our neighbor, and, and Florence would say, oh, my God, you know, Lenore should stay closer to you or kids are so wily or what, what are you going to do? But now it's like, why weren't you paying attention and why why did you let her get away? I, I, last week there was a piece on my blog about parents who had taken a bunch of homeschoolers who had taken kids to uh, a state park and one had wandered away and they'd asked the police to help find him and they found him pretty quickly, you know, within a half hour. Um, and then they issued a summons. The police issued a summons to the mom. And I think in another era, they would have all just been happy. Oh, thank God the kid was found. You listen, Sonny, don't wander off again. I won't, officer. Okay, have a good day, ladies. And instead, a summons for negligence because, you know, all of us have had an experience at some point in our parenting lives when our kids weren't where we thought they were. But now the 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 deal is that if you don't know everything about your kid at any given moment, you are bad. And so it's, that's one of the things that Grow is trying to, to push back on, the idea that parents have to be omniscient and the idea that if anything goes wrong, it's always the parent's fault because it's not. It's as if all of society's different um, parts have become a tyrannical mother-in-law. Yes! Yes! I talk about that. I was like, do we want the government as mother-in-law? It's like, I wouldn't do it that way. I'm going to call 911. It's like, oh, no, my, you know, again, uh, I was on an HBO binge last night and uh, there was a moment where the, one of the characters says, no, she's a great person. You know, she saved my, you know, the son from, from a drowning once in the pool and she was with their mother-in-law and she says, oh, okay, well, why weren't you there? <laughs> it's like, Really? And it's like, well, I was in the. Like, that's the first thing that came to mind. Not like, oh, she's a great yeah. person. It's like, no, why? Why weren't? Why, how could it be that your son would fall in the pool and you weren't there to see it? And, you weren't there. Um, one of the stories in my book was uh, um, I spoke to people. This is already ten years ago, and one woman had had her her daughter broke her arm, and everyone was asking, like, where were you? Why weren't you there? And she's like, I was there. I was pushing her on the swing, and she fell off. It's it's back to the idea that once in a while there's an accident. So I'm just going to finish with the with the last amorphous idea of not only is there this idea of control, but um, 
this this professor I really like named Alan Levinovitz, who is at James Madison University, writes about the role of religion in modern life. And he said it's we still, you know, religion still exists and we still care about it, but the area the area of our life that it covers is shrinking. It used to be that religion told us, you know, what you could wear, what you could eat, who you could marry, sleep with, anything. And now it covers some part of our lives, you know, some rituals, but it doesn't tell us day to day how to do everything the way it used to. And so in its stead, we've come up with our own sort of rules and um, worldview, and and we, we're actually more strict than religion. And ours is don't ever take your eyes off your kids. And so um, if something bad happens in a religious society, you could say, Lord works in mysterious ways or you know what appears to be a curse may be a blessing or something or fate is fickle something that understood that it wasn't all up to us but when you get to modern era that we're living in it is all up to us and so we don't know that we we don't have a a larger world view and we only have ourselves to blame and the culture blames us too and so that's why I don't get mad at helicopter parents or parents who are very nervous because I feel like we need to create a culture that says if your kid gets lost, it's not because you're a lousy parent. If your kid falls off her bike, it's not because you should have been there. No, there is there's a big wide world that kids have to become part of and it will never be perfect and we're not expecting perfection from you or the world. And so we we absolve you. We're on your side. We're all in this together. None of us can do this perfectly. None of our kids are going to get through without some sad, bad experiences. And maybe that's even part of the great scheme of things. And maybe they need that and we need that to recognize just how resilient we are and how decent the world is and how good our neighbors can be and how much has to be part of our children's lives for them to grow up realizing what they can deal with and how how resilient they are. And so we're all just going to give each other the benefit of the doubt and say we're doing the best we can. Nothing is perfect. Even even our kids, even our darling perfect kids are not perfect. And let's just support each other and give them some freedom. I couldn't think of a better place to end this long and, and fantastic conversation than that statement. <laughs> Meandering. <laughs> um, Lenore, thank you so much for sharing this time with me. Um, it's been really illuminating, and I, be- I believe there is no more important issue than what you're tackling with Let Grow, as you know. I think it's um, mm-hmm. it really is the foundational ethics and culture for future generations, and I don't mean that in some fuddy-duddy old kind of uh, old man kind of way, but truly, mm-hmm. like, how do we think about what it means to... Um, become an adult and, and, and be set up for success in life. And I, we're grappling mm-hmm. with this stuff. And, and I think you are tapped into some things that we need to, um, we need to grapple with in our culture. And I just thank you for doing the work. Well, this was fun, John. I mean, I usually don't get two hours <laughs> to talk to anybody about anything, including my family. <laughs> so this was, this was a pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. Have a great one. You too. Thanks for listening to the Emergent Order podcast. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. If you're interested in being a guest, 
shoot us an email at podcast at emergentorder.com. Our producer is Jesse Bennett. Thanks again and speak to you next time.